Father in heaven, we thank you for today. Thank you for the sunshine and the cool breeze. Thank you for the rain you've sent to us, Lord, to water the earth. Father, we pray tonight that you would, by your spirit, water us. Lord, open our hearts and our minds. Lead us and guide us and teach us by your spirit in your truth. Father, we give you thanks. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we took a little break last week and talked about the Passover. So we're on Lesson 18. And we are right around the... Um, right around the uh, beginning or the end, I should say, the end of the 3rd century B.C., so in B.C., we count down from uh, 4,000 to zero, and then once we hit the birth of Christ, then we start counting up again. So we're counting down to the birth of Christ. <clears throat> so here in lesson, uh, I think I, <clears throat> yeah, I started out with the Qin dynasty, just We've been studying a lot of biblical history, and part of the point of this timeline lesson is to kind of uh, get an idea of what's going on in the rest of the world. So in 221 B.C., uh, the Qin Dynasty, spelled Q-I-N, but it's pronounced Qin, the Qin Dynasty came, um, came into power in China. This dynasty only lasted 15 years, but its significance and its impact, really, uh, we're still feeling the impact of it today. Um, so up until this point in China's history, uh, China, um, in fact, this is how China gets its name. China is named for the Qin Dynasty. So before the Qin Dynasty, China was just this large mass of land that was only known by various tribes and states and there was no nation, there was no government uniting everything. And so when you look on a map and you see how large China is and we know how populous China is, well up until the Qin Dynasty in 221 BC, there was no unification of China. You had states fighting states and, you know, jockeying for power. And the Qin Dynasty comes along, and I'm sorry I don't have the guy's name right here. Uh, but he basically rose up and was powerful enough to unite the different various states. And he began to rule China under his rule. And so there have been many dynasties through China, throughout China's history, the Song Dynasty, the Shang Dynasty, but none of these dynasties were able to bring all the people together. Uh, the, the Qin Dynasty did this. It only lasted 15 years, but the unification that was brought still remains today. Uh, and so consequently, China is a unified nation today, and it began 
in 221 BC with the Qin Dynasty. The Great Wall of China wasn't built during the Qin Dynasty, so the, the Great Wall of China was built over periods of time, but it was during the Qin Dynasty that he conquered and expanded his rule, and then he connected the walls, for instance, in the northern part of China to encompass the new areas, and so he made one of his chief focuses was building, repairing, strengthening the Great Wall of China uh, during this time. So in the midst of, while Qin is in China building his wall and bringing China together as a nation, in 218 B.C., a guy by the name of Hannibal... Who knows what city Hannibal was from? Who said Carthage? Yes, Carthage. Hannibal was from Carthage. And so does anyone know where, here's your geography test, does anyone know where Carthage is on the world map? It's, it's not far from another very important city. So, no, uh, Carthage is in North Africa. Right across the sea is Sicily, the island of Sicily. So, Carthage was, uh, was on the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. Carthage was uh, a city that was founded and colonized by the Phoenicians. The Phoenicians were from not North Africa. The Phoenicians were from what we would call Israel today. So the Phoenicians were great sailors. They were seafarers. And they're an ancient people. Long before, you know, uh, Abraham comes, the Phoenicians are there. These people are there. Well, the Phoenicians grew into a power and they, they sailed and traded all over the Mediterranean world. And they colonized cities across the Mediterranean as trade cities. So they would go to ports and they would establish cities where they would kick their ships in and out. And then they began to trade. Who knows what the Phoenicians were famous for trading? It was more valuable than gold. It was extremely valuable. It was very rare. I know you know, Tori. Do you know? Joshua knows. What is it? Purple dye, yes. So the Phoenicians would make their purple dye out of crushed snails. They would crush these snails. The snails would rot, and the rotting snails would produce this purple dye. And this is what kings dyed their clothes with, their cloaks with, their robes with. It was... Very, very expensive, very rare, and the wealthy of the world um, loved the Phoenicians' purple dye. And so uh, Carthage was a city on the North African coast. If you think of where Carthage is today, it's probably going to be somewhere around Al Algeria, uh, Algeria, Morocco, right across from Sicily. 
So it wasn't a long sail across the Mediterranean to the island of Sicily. Well, on the Italian mainland, you know, that boot. So if you can picture, Sicily looks like the thing, the boot of Italy is kicking. So you got the boot, and it looks like the boot's going to give Sicily a boot and kick it. So the island of Sicily's right on the end of the Italian boot. Well, there was another city on the Italian peninsula, a very famous city, who was, was at that time becoming a great world power, and that was the city of Rome. So in 218 BC, Rome was not an empire yet. Rome was uh, a republic. Rome was a very large and influential city, and it was flexing its muscle, but it wasn't a world empire yet. Because remember, at this time, the Greeks are ruling the world. But the Romans are on the rise. And remember that just five years previous to this, or, well, I'm sorry, that's actually not, not correct. In about, in a hundred years uh, previous to this, in, in 323, in a hundred years or so previous to this, remember Alexander's kingdom was divided. So now, uh, in 218, while the Greeks are still doing their thing with this divided kingdom, Rome is growing and Carthage is there and Carthage is this great influential city. And, and Carthage decided that it wanted to secure for itself the island of Sicily. So it invades Sicily, but guess who said, uh-uh, you ain't taking Sicily, the Romans. So there was this battle that took place over the island of Sicily, and guess who won? Well, the Romans won, and that was the first Punic War. And so this guy Hannibal was a great general in Carthage, and Hannibal's dad taught him to hate the Romans. So there was never a Roman that Hannibal befriended. There was never a Roman that Hannibal did not want to kill if given the opportunity. He hated the Romans and he hated the Romans all of his life. And so Hannibal had this great idea that he was going to invade Rome and conquer Rome. And some of you probably know how he decided to do that. Well, if you're just across the Mediterranean Sea and it's a short sail to get to Sicily or to Italy or to Rome, if you were the Romans, you'd be looking for your enemies to come sailing up in ships, right? Well, Hannibal knew that's exactly what the Romans would be looking for so instead, Hannibal decides he's going to invade Rome from the north. I wish I, had a, I wish I had a big map I could show you. But you know how big Africa is? It's a giant. So Carthage is like in the top of North Africa, about in the middle of the continent there, a little, little more than midway. So Hannibal marches his army of like 120,000 men. He's got 130,000. I think it was 137 war elephants. No, I'm sorry, it was 37 war elephants. And he's got all these wagons and all this equipment, and he marches them across North Africa. He goes to the most narrow spot between North Africa and the European continent. Who knows what it is? There's a famous rock there. 
Yeah, it's called now the Rock of Gibraltar, but it wasn't called that then. It, that was named for a Muslim guy who conquered North Africa and then went in and conquered what we know today as Spain. But he crossed right there at the most narrow spot and he marches from the southern coast of Spain up in across the Pyrenees Mountains into um, what we would call Switzerland today. He crosses the Alps down into Italy. By the time he gets into Italy crossing the Alps, he'd lost all but one of his war elephants. He'd lost a third of his men and uh, much of his supply. But Hannibal wages a 15-year campaign in Italy and is a thorn in the flesh to the Romans. They can't beat him. They had three major campaigns in those 15 years, and Hannibal defeated the Romans every time. And so Hannibal is living off the land in Italy, and he is, his goal is to, to conquer Rome. Well, there was a Roman general by the name of Scipio. So while Hannibal is in Italy fighting the, fighting the Romans and trying to work his way down to Rome and conquer the city and take over the world, or at least in the Romans' uh, influence in the world, there's this general named Scipio who's been over in the Middle East fighting the remnant of Alexander's generals and other nations and other tribes, and they're fighting over there, and, and they're doing this, and the Romans' influence is growing. And Scipio was the best general that Rome had. And so Scipio is brought back to Italy to deal with Hannibal, because the Romans can't defeat Hannibal. So Scipio thinks, he, very smart guy, in essence, he thinks, what's going to make Hannibal leave Italy alone? So Scipio invades Carthage. So Scipio mounts an invasion. He sails across the Mediterranean. He attacks Carthage. And when Hannibal gets word that Scipio and the Romans have attacked Carthage, Hannibal immediately goes to the coast, gets on his ships, and sails to try to rescue Carthage. But alas, he couldn't do it. So Scipio in the Second Punic War, the Second Punic War was actually Hannibal's invasion of Italy, but it ended in a Roman victory again because Hannibal is drawn out of Italy back to Carthage. Him and Scipio meet and, and, and Hannibal is defeated. At the end of that battle, Hannibal runs for his life and he goes to the island of Crete and hides out. Um, and so... While all of that is happening, remember the Qin Dynasty in China only lasted 15 years? Well, at the end of the Qin Dynasty, another dynasty comes to power. It's called the Han Dynasty. But it was Qin who united China. It's why China is called China today, named after Qin. But in 206 BC, another dynasty comes to power, the Han Dynasty, and this dynasty lasts 400 years. So you'll see the dates here on your sheet. 
206 BC, which marks the end of the Qin Dynasty and the rise of the Han Dynasty. And the Han Dynasty rules China all the way to 220 AD. Now, uh, who knows? You probably know if you read my little notes here. But, but um, So I asked my fourth grade boys, because this is our fourth grade world history. This is what we're studying in fourth grade. So we're studying the uh, Han Dynasty. Now, well, let me ask you this. Why do you think China, for so many millennium, and I mean for thousands of years, why do you think China was so isolated from the rest of the world? Huh? Himalayas, yes. The Himalayas are one of three geographic features that keeps China isolated from the rest of the world. So you have the Himalayas, you have mountains, the Gobi Desert, that's right. And then on the other side, on the eastern side of China, is the ocean. So you got an ocean, you got an, an imposing mountain range, and you have an imposing desert that insulates China from the rest of the world. So for thousands of years, the Chinese are there in China virtually isolated from the rest of the world. Uh, you know, later on in history, we're going to see where Marco Polo from Venice goes to China. But up until that point, China is virtually isolated. Now, it's not that no one ever went to China or no one from China ever went to the outside, but the the barriers, the natural barriers there were so imposing, there was just nothing that, that would cause people to want to go through the hardship and cross those mountains and cross that desert. There was no need for them to because there was plenty of trade and commerce and things. But China did have something that the West wanted badly. Now, I asked my fourth graders this question. I said, there was nothing China wanted from the West. So China was self-sufficient. They didn't need anything from the West. There was nothing they needed in China that the West had to offer. So they weren't going outside their area trying to get something from, there was actually one thing from the West that China wanted that China didn't have. There was one thing, does anyone know what it is? One thing that they didn't have in China that the West had that the Chinese wanted. Horses. They didn't have horses in China. So the Chinese would get horses from the West. They'd get them from Egypt. They'd get them from different places. And, that, and, and so they did need that. But other than that, they didn't need horses. They wanted horses. But there was something the West desperately wanted from China. I asked my fourth graders this, and they really struggled with the correct answer. And you know what? I, I told them, I said, come on, guys, it's easy. Do you know what the West, it, it's obvious. Do you know what the West wanted from China desperately? Chinese buffets. And my fourth graders were like, really? Yeah. I said, no, I'm just teasing really isn't Chinese buffets. But I do love me a good Chinese buffet. I'll tell you that. And I'm thankful for Chinese buffets. But that's not what the West wanted. The West wanted silk. They wanted silk. 
And do you know that the Chinese kept silk a secret for over 3,000 years? And when I say it's a secret, it's not that the West didn't know silk existed. The West had no idea how the Chinese made silk. They had no clue where silk came from. So you had people trying to make silk, trying to figure it out. It was a state secret. So uh, the, the Chinese protected the secret of silk. I mean, if you were caught trying to take silkworms or anything out of China other than finished silk fabrics that they would sell, it was the death penalty. I mean, you were punished because they guarded silk, the secret of silk, like we guard our nuclear secrets here in the West. And so during the Han Dynasty, the, the trade of silk flourished. And so there were roads built, silk roads. It's called the Silk Road. But it wasn't the Silk Road singular, it was the Silk Roads. So roads were established from China across mountain ranges, across deserts. Uh, those roads were uh, established and they would, those Silk Roads culminated there in, in Syria, in the Middle East, at the coast of the Mediterranean Sea. So cities like Tyre, Tyre and Sidon. So Tyre, the, the Sidonians were also, they were Phoenicians. And they were master sailors. And, and so Sidon became a very rich city because, it, because of its trade. Sidon was this fortress city out in the Mediterranean Sea that no one could conquer. Um, but remember who conquered it? Alexander the Great did. Because Alexander the Great did what no other world leader could do. And so there were people that conquered the city on the coast, but they couldn't conquer the city out in the sea. So remember Alexander just gets slave labor and he builds a causeway and he builds a roadway and marches right up to that city and conquers them. Well, Sidon had become so rich, so powerful, so mighty because of its trade. They were merchants and they were extremely wealthy. And part of that wealth had to do with the silk trade. And so the Chinese would get their silk to those merchants. And then those merchants, those Phoenicians would put it on ships and then they would ship it all over the Mediterranean, so to Rome. So the rich people in Rome wanted silk and they wanted that silk dyed a certain color, purple. And so when you had purple silk, I mean, it's like more valuable than gold. And so all the rich people all over the world wanted silk and they wanted purple and they wanted these things. And so the silk roads became these trade routes that, that ended there, and then they'd get on ships and go from there. And that's how these merchants became so wealthy. Well, it was during the Han Dynasty that the silk trade really flourished. Uh, because why? So think about it. What's happened by the time we get to around 206 BC? Well, Alexander has marched across the world. He's marched all the way into India, right up to the you know, the Himalaya mountains. And China was already, you know, the people of China were, were already engaged in all of that area of the world. And so when Alexander come and, 
in Alexander's building roads and establishing peace and governments and a common language. And so it just became natural that trade would begin to flourish because now there was a way to carry that merchandise. And these silk roads developed even more than they had before. And so the Han dynasty was was very um, much influential in that because a dynasty that ruled for 400 years provided great stability. So this is what you might call the golden age of China. You know, this is where, I mean, it was during the Han dynasty, it would be later, it was around 100 AD, who knows what the Chinese invented that we use every day. Huh? Well, they did invent gunpowder. They invented fireworks, and from that they they did gunpowder, but something else that you use every day in all kinds of ways, in ways you probably don't even think about. They invented paper. It was the Chinese that invented paper. It came about around 100 AD, but it was under the Han Dynasty that paper was invented. The Chinese were the first to, to, to to create paper money. So imagine if you had to carry coins around everywhere you went, how heavy that would be. Chinese invented paper money so that you didn't have to carry heavy coins around everywhere. And so how did those, how did those discoveries come about? What does 400 years of stability rule by one dynasty, that peace, that stability, that prosperity... When, when, a, when a nation, when a people have prosperity and peace, what are they not worried about every day? When you wake up in the morning, are you wondering, are you wondering how you're going to survive today? Are you wondering where you're going to get a meal because your children haven't eaten in, in four days and you don't know where you're going to get your food from? I mean, the majority of people in the world, that's how they live. I mean, for centuries and centuries and centuries. Well, you, you get someone like the Han Dynasty who establishes peace and prosperity and stability. And now every day, I'm not, I'm not wondering how I'm going to eat. I'm just trying to figure out what I'm going to eat because I'm not really in the mood for eggs. I got eggs. I got cereal. I got oatmeal. Uh, I got leftovers from last night. Man, nothing sounds good to me. Maybe I'll just stop on my way and get a taco. That sounds pretty good. I mean, you think about when we say we're hungry, are we really hungry? No, we want to eat, but we're not really hungry. We're not starving. We're not malnourished. And so because we're not trying to figure out how to survive every day, I have time to do things like what? Who's reading the book right now? How did that book get written? The guy who wrote that book didn't have to get up every day and figure out how he's going to survive. He had the leisure to sit and write. Or that artist or that sculptor had the leisure to sit and paint or sculpt. Or somebody had the leisure time to figure out, what can we do with all this wood pulp here from all the sawdust here? Surely there's something. We just keep throwing it away. What what might we be able to do with this? Oh, let's make some paper. I mean, those, those advancements come in our culture, in our world, because there's peace and prosperity. Poets can write poetry. Authors can write books. 
They can't do that if they're running for their life every day. And so peace, and we see this across cultures. This is what we see in the Han Dynasty. For 400 years, there's peace and prosperity. And so you can see, it was during the Han Dynasty, they start making fine china. They invented paper, uh, gunpowder, fireworks. Uh, there's all kinds of things. They learned to build canals and, and, and make transportation systems through waterways across their nation to make trading even more efficient. And so all of this is happening in China, which, by the way, is setting the stage for the China we have today. So then in 202 B.C., Hannibal's drawn away. He's defeated. He goes to the island of Crete. In 183 B.C., so he lives on the island of Crete from about 202 B.C. What is that? 19 years. And finally, the Romans find him. They never stopped looking for him because they knew as long as Hannibal was alive, Carthage would be a threat because Hannibal was that charismatic. He was that good of a leader, that good of a tactician. And so they never stopped looking for him, and they found him on the island of Crete. And he was living there. He had lots of money. He thought he had, you know, he was 70 years old, and the Romans, uh, he gets warned, they're coming for you. And so when the Romans get to his house, he knows they're there. He knows they're coming. And Hannibal had a ring on his finger that he never took off, and he'd had it since he was all over Italy, defeating Romans, and inside that ring was poison. And so Hannibal says, I'm not going to give the Romans the pleasure of capturing me and torturing me, and I'm going to kill myself. And that's what Hannibal did in 183 B.C. And so Carthage, who knows what the Romans did to Carthage after they defeated it. Now this happens again, so we're not quite there yet in our timeline, but in about 40 years... Uh, we're going to see that Carthage tries one more time to rise up against Rome. And this time, when the Romans come in, uh, they completely decimate the city of Carthage. We'll talk about that when we get there. We're not quite there. But Hannibal is gone. Incidentally, in, in the same year that Hannibal died, Scipio died. So Scipio didn't know that Hannibal was dead and Hannibal didn't know that Scipio was dead. They, they both died separately and they died mortal enemies of each other. So while all of this is happening, so if you just, you think about the Mediterranean Sea and all of this is kind of happening in the, in the Western Mediterranean. So you got Sicily and Crete and North Africa well, in the eastern Mediterranean, on the coast of what we would call Israel today, so Egypt, Israel, up to Lebanon, all the way around to Turkey. So on the eastern side, remember, this is where Alexander's four generals divided everything. And so um, they divided it into four, but really there were only three the one guy, uh, Lysimachus, he kind of got absorbed into the Seleucid Empire. And so the Seleucids controlled all of Asia. The Ptolemies, were the, were the, that was the general that went down to Egypt, and he took Egypt. 
Now, he had a much smaller geographic footprint, but think about Egypt. How long has Egypt been around? Oh, a long time. And when you think about how long Egypt has been around, now, when we read our Old Testament history, we see that even when the kingdom of Israel is divided, you've got, you've got the kings of the north and the kings of the south trying to make alliances with the Egyptians, trying to get the Egyptians to come and help them. And so the Egyptians were kind of like the, the Assyrians. They'll, they'll work for the highest bidder. So I don't know if it was our Bible reading. I don't, I don't remember if it was current or past, but remember when um, I think it was King Asa. It was one of the kings of Judah. Um, no, that was a different one. But anyways, the king of Assyria had an allegiance with the northern kingdom. And so the king of Judah sends gold and silver to the king of Assyria. And he says, hey, remember, my father had an, uh, an alliance with you. Here's this gold and silver. Why don't you break your alliance with uh, Israel and, and join us so that Israel will stop trying to invade us and, and bother us? Because if you're forced, they're, they're going to leave us alone. And so this is what happened. So when the Ptolemies, uh, when, when Ptolemy, the general of Alexander, took the south, he took Egypt. It was a smaller geographic footprint, but think about the wealth and the power and the influence that Egypt has had for thousands of years. Well, all that wealth became Alexander's when Alexander took over Egypt. And now this general uh, has all of that wealth. Well, what's happening is the Ptolemies and the Seleucids. So Antiochus. Well, if you read this history, you'll see that for many, many, many decades, there were, were, were rulers named Antiochus who were Seleucid rulers. We're, we're going to look here in 175 BC, one in particular named Antiochus Epiphanes. Now his dad's name was Antiochus. His granddad's name was Antiochus. There were lots of Antiochus. But Antiochus Epiphanes becomes king in 175 BC. Now, and his kingdom is centered in Syria, what we would call Syria today. And, and, and Antioch was, was kind of his center place. Now, Guess where Antiochus Epiphanes was when he became king? I, I didn't know this until I studied this. So he was in Rome. You know what he was doing in Rome? He was basically a prisoner in Rome. So Rome is not an empire yet. It's not a world power yet, but it has great influence. And Rome is growing and so these generals of Alexander, so once Alexander dies and he divides the empire, the empire is slowly fading. Its power is, is, is being usurped. And so they're now fighting against one another. So you had, you know, Antiochus and the Seleucid dynasty fighting against Ptolemy and the, his Greek brethren down in Egypt. And they're all fighting for power and control. And while they're fighting amongst each other, guess what the Romans are doing? They're quietly 
becoming the power of the world. And so the Seleucids go to the Romans and they say, hey, we need your help against these guys down in Egypt. Well, the Romans were like, okay, but guess they were also willing to help the guys down in Egypt. And so you had the Romans playing both sides. And so Antiochus Epiphanes was actually like a prisoner. He wasn't in prison. He was the son of a king, but he was there in Rome kind of under house arrest. And so when his dad died and his dad made it known that Antiochus Epiphanes was going to become the next king, the Romans allowed him to go back and take the throne. They allowed him to. They didn't have to, but they allowed him to. So there was this unspoken allegiance that Rome had. And so all of this political intrigue is happening all at the same time. So you have one great empire, Greece, that is crumbling. And you have the next great empire, Rome, which is now rising to power. So all the while, Daniel's prophecy is being fulfilled. But it's being fulfilled across centuries, across many decades. And this is, the, this is what we need to realize when we read the scripture. We read the prophecy and it happens in just a few short verses. But what it records in a few short verses is actually happening over many centuries. And true to God's word, true to what Daniel prophesied, this is exactly what we see happening here. And so Antiochus Epiphanes becomes king. And the legal high priest in Jerusalem at that time is a guy named Onias III. And he has a brother named Jason. And with a large sum of money that Jason promises Antiochus, Antiochus comes in and basically says to Onias, you're not the high priest, your brother is now. And so, as you can imagine, Jason was not a, um, he wasn't an upright guy. His brother Onias was, but Jason wasn't. And then three years later, or four years later, really about three years later, uh, if we counted the months closer, uh, three to four years later, Antiochus is able to subdue Egypt. So the Ptolemies in Egypt and the Seleucids up in, in Asia and Syria have been fighting, fighting, fighting. Finally, in 171, Antiochus is able to subdue Egypt and Ptolemy's, the commander of Ptolemy's army. Jason is replaced by a guy named Menelaus as high priest. And when Menelaus, he's not a good guy either. When Menelaus comes to power, he actually has the legal high priest, Onias, murdered. And when Onias is murdered, the, the Jews are outraged because they, they knew that Onias was the legal high priest. So in 170 BC, in the midst of this intrigue, so Menelaus comes to power, he murders the legal high priest. The Jewish people begin to uh, revolt. They're in an uproar. Um, Menelaus, though he's a Jew, Jason is a Jew. They are not for God. 
They are for themselves. And so by this time, because of Antiochus, because of the Greeks, so all these Gentiles are coming into Jerusalem. And many sacrilegious were... Um, so they, they desecrated so many places throughout Jerusalem. They built altars to false gods and they desecrated the temple. And as they continued to do this, the Jewish people became more and more uh, upset. Antiochus is down in Egypt, remember, fighting the Egyptians, subduing Egypt. And he hears this rumor that he is dead. And so this rumor goes out that Antiochus Epiphanes is dead. And when the Jewish people, when the people of the Jews in Jerusalem hear that Antiochus is dead, the Jews begin to rejoice and celebrate. The only problem is Antiochus wasn't really dead. Now, <clears throat> When you read history about this guy, he was obviously a psychopath, which a lot of these kings and rulers were. I mean, because they had absolute power, they, they had no, I mean, they believed they were God, so they didn't answer to anyone. And they had absolute power. So it was nothing for them to just, to do the unthinkable in our minds. So word gets back to Antiochus down in Egypt, fighting his Greek brethren, trying to take over this area, that the Jews in Jerusalem were, were basically celebrating because they thought he was dead. Well, this infuriated him. And so he marches back up to Jerusalem and to Judea. And he comes into the city and he orders his soldiers to kill anyone and everyone they meet. Doesn't matter whether it's a man, a woman, a little boy, a little girl. If they're Jewish, you kill them. Uh, that was the order. And when Antiochus marches his army back up to Jerusalem, um, in three days, the historians tell us that there were over 80,000 men missing, they were able to confirm that 40,000 were dead in three days, and they believe the others were perhaps carried away captive. They don't really know. They just, they disappeared. They were gone, never to be seen again. In three days, Antiochus does this in Jerusalem. Then he goes into the temple, and this guy, Menelaus, who was made the high priest, is his guide, and he, Menelaus, takes Antiochus into the temple. Now, there's a story before Antiochus, Epiphanes, comes to power, when another Antiochus, when he first comes to Jerusalem, he wants to go into the temple, and the high priest says, you can't go into the temple. And he's like... I'm the king. I can go anywhere I want to go. And the story is, and this is, this is decades before Antiochus Epiphanes. The story supposedly is recorded that this, this Antiochus, before we get to this point, this king named Antiochus, the Seleucid king, goes into the temple and he says, I'm the king. I can go anywhere I want. 
And he, he wants to go into the Holy of Holies. And so the, the high priest or the priests are there and they're just like they're on the ground weeping and crying. And the high priest falls on the ground face down before the Lord and just begins to cry out and begins to pray. And this guy is, is in the, he's not in the most holy place, but he's come into the place where the lampstand and the showbread, table of showbread and the altar of incense is, and there's just now a veil between him and the, the, the Holy of Holies. And the priest is on the ground crying, praying, and the story goes that God miracul miraculously strikes this king. And this king is stricken by God. He's not killed, but he is stricken and paralyzed. He's in pain, and he can't walk. And he falls to the ground and it's obvious to everyone there that God has struck this guy and his soldiers have to carry him out of the temple. And so he didn't go in to the Holy of Holies. But now we're, we're several decades later and Antiochus Epiphanes comes into Jerusalem and he kills over 80, you know, 40,000 plus people, 80,000 people disappear. The illegal high priest takes Antiochus into the temple and Antiochus orders. So he begins to take everything. So Antiochus takes all the gold, all the silver. He takes the tables, the, the menorahs, all the gold on the walls and the ceiling. He strips it off. He takes all the gold, all the silver, because he's paying tribute to Rome. That's why, that's why he was in Rome when he was made king. And so the Romans let him be king, but he's got to pay tribute to the Romans because the Romans have now become the power. Even though they don't rule everything yet, they're the power and everybody needs their help. And so in order to meet the tribute to Rome, he says, well, I'll just take all this gold because they had all heard that there was great wealth in the temple because the temple, what else did the temple serve as for the people? We don't think about this a lot, but this was true not just for the temple in Jerusalem. This was true for pagan temples. Temples were the banking system of the day. So temples were banks. So guess where all the little widows and people kept their money? They kept it in the temple. That was the bank. So this is a thing that's very often missed when we think about Jesus. When Jesus comes and he cleanses the temple, there's more than just the buying and selling of animals. There is that, and there was nothing wrong with that because that actually helped the worshipers. They could buy their animals there. What was wrong was they were... They were ripping the people off. They knew they had a monopoly and they knew the people had to do business with them. So they jacked the prices up and they were ripping people off. And so the amount of money that was in the temple was a huge amount of money. Antiochus comes in and he starts taking all that out. And he begins to. Um, sacrifice pigs on the altar and he boils pig flesh and he makes the high priest and all the priests eat pig flesh and drink pig broth and he took the pig broth 
And he took all the holy books in the temple, all the holy scriptures, and he poured pig broth all over them. He poured pig broth on everything he could find. And he put pig blood on everything he could find because he knew it desecrated this holy place. And it was, it was unclean, not just unclean. This was an abomination to the Jews. And, and so he went throughout Jerusalem doing this, just desecrating everything he could because he could. And then when he finished his personal desecrations and his personal cruelties, he put men in charge that were even more cruel than he was. And he told them, be as cruel as you want to these Jews because they were hoping I was dead. He was teaching them a lesson. So in 168 BC, he sets out again for Egypt. And he sets um, a guy by, by the name of Apollonius as the overseer for the collection of the tribute. And he has an army of 22,000 men that go throughout the cities of Judah collecting taxes, basically. It was two full years after the plunder of the temple in Jerusalem. And Apollonius comes to Jerusalem with his 22,000 men. And it seems like he's going to be peaceful. But he didn't come there for peace. And he begins to kill and plunder and he actually begins to tear down the city. So he's tearing down houses. He's tearing down the walls of Jerusalem. He's burning homes. He's killing uh, people. He's selling people into slavery. And from that time in 168 BC, Antiochus oppressed Jerusalem. And according to Josephus, the daily sacrifice in the temple ceased for three and a half years. That is very consistent with Daniel's prophecy. So for three and a half years, there is no daily sacrifice. It ceases. And in the midst of all of this, a guy by the name of Judas Maccabeus with nine other men escaped Jerusalem and they lived in the mountains. The way Josephus described it, they lived in the mountains for foraging like wild beasts, just living off the land. And it's this same Judas Maccabeus who would return three and a half years later to restore the purity of the temple. So Apollonius marches in, Judas flees, three and a half years, there's no daily sacrifice in the temple. So until that time, until, in, until Judas Maccabee comes back to deliver Jerusalem. So think about from the time Antiochus comes, when he hears about the Jews rejoicing over his death, he starts killing. This, this is pretty much nonstop. And so what happens is the inhabitants of Jerusalem are either killed or they're driven out. And the Jews fled the city so that the inhabitants of Jerusalem were no longer Jewish for the most part. 
The Jews were killed. They were driven out. And Jerusalem was a, was a city inhabited by the way Josephus, the Jewish historian, described it. They're, 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 it's inhabited by strangers. And foreign to her own citizens. And as the Samaritans saw the oppression of the Jews, remember the Samaritans? Those are the people who, when the Assyrians carried away the northern tribes, they sent in Assyrian people to assimilate with the people left there. And this is what became known as the Samaritans. Remember when Nehemiah and those guys came back and the Samaritans wanted to help them build the temple and they wanted to worship at the temple too and they said, no, you can't. And so we talked about how they decided they would build their own temple on Mount Gerizim. And so they got a priest, a Jewish priest, to go to Samaria and start his own priesthood. But it wasn't a legal priesthood. Well, now these Samaritans who wanted to be part of the Jews and part of the Jewish worship before, guess what's happening now? They see what Antiochus is doing to the Jews and they're worried that their association with the Jews, that persecution is going to bleed over to them. And so they obtained letters basically claiming that they were descendants of the Sidonians. They weren't Jewish after all, so that they wouldn't suffer the fate of the Jews. And that their temple on Mount Gerizim had not been dedicated, hadn't been dedicated yet. It hadn't been dedicated to any god, so they dedicated it to Zeus. Because that's who Antiochus worshipped, Zeus, in the pantheon of Greek gods. And they named that temple Zeus Helonius. This is around 168 B.C. In 167 B.C., because Antiochus is still on a tear, he orders all countries and all people that he rules over to adopt the manner of worship of the Greeks upon death. So if you do not worship as we worship, if you do not worship what we worship, you'll be killed. And so it was against the law, not just to worship as a Jew, but to worship as anything other than what and how Antiochus told you you had to worship. And so he renamed the temple at Jerusalem Zeus Olympus. Antiochus did. It was his temple now. He renamed it Zeus Olympus. He renamed the temple on Mount Gerizim Zeus Hospit Hospitable, Hospitalis, meaning friend of strangers. Since he did this because the, the Samaritans were strangers in the Jewish land, they had successfully convinced him that they weren't the same people. So he renames these two temples, and then monthly celebrations would take place, and all these celebrations, they continued to desecrate things. On the feast of, of Bacchus, the temple in Jerusalem, which is now called Zeus Olympus, was filled with rioters and revelers. And remember, it's all Gentiles now. And they bring in harlots and prostitutes. It's like one big drunken orgy right in the middle of God's temple, God's house. And they filled the altar and the temple with all sorts of idols and all unlawful things, and they sacrificed and ate unclean animals. And then on the 15th day of Chislop, which is our like November and December, 
These are like Babylonian names of months. So somewhere in that year around um, between November and December on the 15th day of that month, they erected what was called the abomination of desolation. The detestable idol of Zeus Olympus on the altar. So they had a statue, an idol of Zeus built. And they placed it on the altar in the temple. And they had idols built and they placed them all over the city of Jerusalem and all over the cities of Judea. So that all the cities of Judea became centers of worship of Zeus. And the temple in Jerusalem became the temple of Zeus. They burned all the scriptures and all the religious books of the Jews that they could find. Antiochus ordered all the books of the Jews burned. And they executed anyone they found who possessed the scriptures. So it was complete fear and intimidation so that people would, would want to give up the books, want to get rid of the books. The people were commanded to defile themselves in direct violation of the law of Moses. So they were commanded to eat detestable things and to do detestable things so that they would become defiled and they could not, they could not be Jews anymore because they couldn't sacrifice. They couldn't get atonement. They couldn't get forgiveness because they couldn't follow the law. So the goal was to make and to defile as many people as possible and make them live in this defiled state. Children were not allowed to be circumcised any longer. Observing the Jewish religion in any way was now a crime punishable by death. Families were publicly paraded through the streets and executed if it, found, if they, if it was found that they circumcised their, their sons or that they were practicing their faith. All of this was an effort to make the Jews forget their law, to forget their religion, when you consider all that the Jews have been through, it's really quite amazing what they have endured, and yet God's grace has remained, and they have been able to hold on to the Scripture and hold on, even though today you have Jews who don't trust in Jesus as their Messiah. God has preserved this people, and God has preserved their religion which is what our faith is founded upon. He, he did that miraculously. When you consider the links these men like Antiochus Epiphanes went to to try to wipe this religion off the face of the earth to make people forget. Do we think that men are not doing that still today? What do you think is happening in our nation today? Now, we don't have people going door to door threatening to kill us because we have Bibles in our homes. But do you think there's an effort underway to make us forget our faith, to make us forget God, to make us think that God is irrelevant? They don't have to tell us to forget him. They're just, they're working in ways that are so sinister, that are so underhanded that they're bringing that about in ways that are not overt but they're very effective. I was having a conversation with someone today at this training I met, and we were, I don't remember what we were talking about, but we were talking about, you know, how parents have basically abandoned their children to, to the government. 
We, many people now in America think it's the government's responsibility to educate my children. And you know what? The government wants you to believe that. They want you to believe it's their responsibility to educate your children. You know why? Because the government today is just like Antiochus was with the Jews. He might not be, they might not be killing people because they're practicing their religion, but they're saying, yeah, give us your children. We'll take your children. And from the very youngest age, we will indoctrinate them and we will make them forget their God and their religion and the roots of everything this nation and this culture is built upon. And we see, we read about these things in history and we think, oh, how ghastly, how horrible. Yet we're living in the midst of it right now. They're just using different means to accomplish the same end. And we need to be wise enough to see that and to pray against it and to work against it. And when Antiochus saw how despised his policies were among the Jews, he forced all Jews through torture to eat unclean foods, to renounce their God and to renounce their religion. And as a result, very many Jews went to their death because they refused to renounce their God and they refused to disobey the scripture. Then in 165 BC, this is where we're going to pick up next week, Judas Maccabee returns and he leads a revolt to take back the temple at Jerusalem. And uh, we'll talk about that next week. That's where we'll pick up. We'll pick up at 165. BC. All right, any questions? Any thoughts? Well, no, I think the book, the bronze bow, isn't that book 11, 11, 11, 11? You know that I do not know that book. Huh? No, they're reading it? They've read it? Do I have a literature teacher that can tell me anything about that book? Okay. The Bronze Bow. Well, let me, let me just uh, make a note of that. Uh, it, it's about the Maccabean Revolt, or it, or it talks about it. Yeah. The bronze bow, that almost sounds like a, a, a reference to the Greeks, but, uh, but if it's hi Greek history in this time, it would certainly. Ah, oh, okay, a bow of bronze. Well, there you go. That's even better. All right. What else? Have you read it? Okay. Well, I'm behind the times. I've never read it. Yeah. All right. What else? That was Alexandria. So it, so that's happening right now. So um, yeah. So Ptolemy, the first Ptolemy, actually the the son of the original Ptolemy, uh, who was Alexander's general. He loved books and loved learning, and he was the one who uh, really began to collect books. 
And um, it was under him that he commissioned the Jews to translate the um, Old Testament scriptures into Greek. And, uh, and he wanted to be able to read them himself, but he also saw the value in it. And so he gave the Jews permission to do that and actually funded it and helped them. So, yeah, in Alexandria, of course, is named after Alexander, but that great city did house that great library, the greatest library of the ancient world. Um, it's coming up. I don't know the exact year, but yeah. It's still in existence. Yes, yeah, they're still collecting books. Yeah, absolutely. Any other questions? All right.